Hey everybody, Mike Dempsey here. It's NFL playoff time, and you can still win playing Underdog Fantasy by picking higher or lower on player stats at underdogfantasy.com. Sign up with promo code 1010XL, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. He's Hacker. I like a good serial killer documentary. He hasn't taken the pounding that wide receivers take. Uh, it's just a pound job, and, and guys are tired towards that, that four minutes. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. I would be lying to you if I said I had not heard things. They're like a bad rash. You hear a lot of things. Some are true, some aren't. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Friday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us to close out the week here on Hacker After Dark. As uh, It's been a busy week. It's been an interesting week, certainly. No question about that. And we're going to close it out with you here on 1010XL and on 92. Point five FM coming up this evening. We got a lot to do. Obviously, John Shipley, Jaguar Report will join us. We're also going to look at the Super Bowl, the San Francisco kind of things, and the Kansas City side of things. Seren Petro, Sports Radio eight ten in the Kansas City area, will be on with us in about thirty five minutes or so in the nine o'clock hour. Jose Sanchez, all forty niners dot com to give us the forty niners side of the game nine days out from Super Bowl 58. But as we always do, we do like to keep it Jaguar-related when there is Jaguar news, and there certainly is Jaguar news today. Every night on Hacker After Dark, we do kick it off with a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. All right. So, a couple of things happened today in the world of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Number one, the Tennessee Titans came down here and took somebody off the Jaguar coaching staff. And I said this earlier, um, I don't want to be this guy because I don't know if this guy did a good job or not, and I don't want to downplay the hire for the Titans But in listening to Nashville radio today, they're just going bonkers, man. They're going absolutely nuts that they got the Jaguar passing game coordinator in Nick Holtz. And I got to be honest with you, um, being down at training camp and and mini camps and there during the season, if Nick Holtz walked into this radio studio right now, I don't know if I would recognize him. I mean, we just didn't talk about the guy. What does a passing game coordinator really do, right? We talked a lot about Doug Peterson. We talked a lot about Press Taylor. We talked a lot about those guys on offense, Mike McCoy even, you know, Phil Rauscher on the O-line. We just didn't talk a whole lot about Nick Holes, who came in to replace Jim Bob Cooter. So Again, greatest name in sports, Jim Bob Cooter. So this is the second year in a row the Jaguars have lost their passing game coordinator. Jim Bob Cooter left to be the offensive coordinator of division rival Indianapolis. And now Nick Holes leaves to be the offensive coordinator of division rival Tennessee. Is that a loss for the Jaguars? I don't know. 
I know Nick Holes and Brian Callahan, the brand-new Titans head coach, were high school teammates, right, which probably had a lot to do with why Holes got that job. Also, Holes is not going to call plays up there. Brian Callahan, the Titans' new head coach, is going to call plays up there. He'll have to be replaced. I'm sure Doug Peterson will hire somebody. Maybe Frank Reich, who's available. I don't know. Who knows who's going to be hired? But I just don't know if it's a big loss. Again, Nick Holes could be the greatest coach on planet Earth, but he was invisible here in Jacksonville. We never talked about him. We never heard from him. Again, I don't even know if I would recognize him if he walked in here right now. Having said all that, it's a great opportunity for him, I'm sure, to be an offensive coordinator with a brand-new regime up in Tennessee, and and best of luck. Um, And we'll see what happens with Doug Peterson in filling that part of the Jaguar staff now. It's been all about the defense, but keep in mind, they fired Bernie Parmley, the running back coach. They fired the assistant O-line coach. They now have to replace the passing game coordinator. So there's three offensive staff changes that will be made by the Jaguars. So I I wanted to throw that out there. That was one piece of Jaguar news today. The other piece of Jaguar news comes in the form of Josh Allen down at the Pro Bowl in Orlando, Florida. Jamal St. Cyr of Channel 4, who we have on all the time here on Hacker After Dark. In fact, he was on with us earlier this week, was talking to Josh Allen earlier today And Josh Allen didn't say a whole lot, but Jamal, I believe, asked something along the lines of negotiations with Jacksonville. You know, what are your thoughts? I'm paraphrasing there, but that essentially was the question. And Josh Allen said, let's talk business. We need to talk. We need to talk. It is February 2nd. The season has been over for 26 days. Free agency begins five weeks from Monday. And you got one of the cornerstone foundation pieces of your franchise talking into a microphone today to Jaguar management saying we need to talk. This, of course, is after last week's revelation from Trent Baalke, the Jaguar general manager, that negotiations have not begun with Josh Allen. I can see both sides of this, and I don't want this to get sticky between the organization and Josh Allen. I got a feeling it might get sticky. We'll see how it goes. And what do I mean by that? Josh Allen had a ridiculous year in 2023. Ridiculous year. However, if you add up quarterback sacks for Josh Allen in 2020, 2021, and 2022, that equals his production in 2023. It was his first double-digit sack season since his rookie year. His rookie year, he got 10 and a half sacks. Then he went down to two and a half. Then he had seven and seven and a half before in a contract year, he gets 17 and a half. I think they ought to pay Josh Allen. I don't believe Josh Allen's going anywhere, but Do you pay Josh Allen among the top two, three, four defensive ends in the National Football League? That's what he's going to want. That's what he thinks he earned with what he did in 2023. But if you're the Jaguars, again, if it's about affecting the opposing quarterback, you look at Allen in 2020, 2021, and 2022. 
I believe those three years combined, he got 17 and a half or 18 sacks. So in those three years combined, he did what he did by himself solo in 2023. It's easy to say, pay the guy whatever he wants. Is Josh Allen the 17 and a half sack guy that we saw this year? Or is he more the seven and a half sack guy that we saw in 21 and 22? I think it probably lies somewhere in the middle. You cannot bank on the fact that getting 17 and a half sacks every year from Josh Allen. That's not feasible to me. But I think you should expect more than the seven and a half sacks you got in the 22 season. I think 10, 11 sacks right there in the middle is your realistic goal for Josh Allen. And if your realistic goal for Josh Allen is to get you a 10, 11, maybe 12 sacks a year, is that worth top five edge money? I think at the worst case scenario, you franchise the guy. Again, I don't think he's going anywhere, but will that get sticky between Allen and his reps and the Jaguars when it comes to how much Josh Allen is actually worth? And again, whatever happens with Josh Allen will have a complete and total domino effect on what happens with Calvin Ridley. If you're able to re-sign Allen, you could franchise Ridley. If you have to franchise Allen, which looks like the direction it's headed, Ridley's probably going to hit the market, which makes it much more less likely that Ridley will be back in 2024. So again, I I think you got to be careful for the Jaguars. You got to understand that Josh Allen had his best year by far in 2023, and you have to figure out, was that because it was a contract year? And we've seen that, right? Jawan Taylor had his best year as a pro last year. It was a contract year. I'll never forget the year Mercedes Lewis had in 2010 where he had double-digit touchdowns. It was a contract year. People tend to play better when it's contract time. Now, that's not to say Josh Allen didn't find something. That's not to say Josh Allen can't get you 12 or 13 sacks next season, but I wouldn't bank on him being a 17-and-a-half sack guy every year. His first four years in the league, he was far from that. Far from that. So, again, just be careful when you say the Jaguars need to pay Josh Allen whatever he wants. I agree I want Josh Allen here, and I agree that he will be here if for no other reason than on the franchise tag, worst-case scenario. But I also look at the production, and his production went way up in 2023 based on where it was his first four years in the National Football League. 641-1010 on the phone line and on the text line, designed by Lifetime Enclosures. Again, a lot of NFL talk tonight, a lot of talk about the Super Bowl. We'll go to Kansas City in about 30 minutes. Seren Petro, Sports Radio 810. Talking Chiefs, we'll go to the Bay Area out in San Francisco in the 9 o'clock hour. Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com, talking San Francisco as we are nine days out from Super Bowl 58. Coming up next, John Shipley, Jaguar Report. Let's talk Josh Allen. Let's talk Calvin Ridley. Let's talk Ryan Nielsen, the new defensive coordinator. Let's talk about everything that has transpired. Over the last 26 days since the Jaguar season came to an end, John Shipley of Jaguar Report next on a Friday night edition of Hacker After Dark. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. 
Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. We are now three weeks into the Jaguar offseason. Hard to believe a month away from the franchise tag period and six weeks or so away from the start of NFL free agency. With that, let me welcome in my buddy John Shipley of Jaguar Report. He does a terrific job covering the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. John, how we doing? Hey, doing good, my friend. John, appreciate the time as always. Now, you and I spoke the Monday after the season ended, and at that point, there were a lot of questions, and here we are three weeks later, and there's still a lot of questions, uh, one of which we've gotten an answer to, Mike Caldwell out as defensive coordinator, and Ryan Nielsen in as brand-new Jaguar defensive coordinator john let's start there your thoughts on the hire of ryan nielsen no i i really think it's a home run hire i think when you're looking at some of these other defense coordinator hires really that have been in the nfl you know this season this offseason alone and some of the other guys who are getting interviews you know ron rivera brandon staley etc i still think nielsen you know when you compare him against this entire coaching pool this offseason alone is the best option. You know, he has two years as a coordinator. I know he was a co-coordinator in 2022 with the Saints, but it's, you know, he has a track record of developing players on the defensive line. Obviously the overhaul of the Falcons defense last year, which in my opinion goes beyond, you know, just adding some of the players that they added. I think it's hard not to be impressed uh, with the hire. And I really think it's the best possible hire that they could have made this offseason. So, you know, I, I think I, I, I set up on, you know, the Jaguar Report podcast uh, last week that in, in my five years covering them, I think I've covered nine different coordinators, offensive and defensive get hired. I think this is the best one just in terms of how it looks when the hire is made. You know, you do a lot of analytics stuff and you talk to a lot of people, number crunching and formations. I mean, to the untrained eye, John, to Joe Q average football fan, that's going to be watching the Jaguars next year, the way he has watched them for the previous, you know, few years. Will they see an, a difference between a Mike Caldwell defense and a Ryan Nielsen defense? What are the biggest differences? I think so. I know, you know, general manager Trent Baalke on, you know, last Thursday kind of said that the man coverage thing was overblown. But I mean, you just look at all the available public data and it shows that it's not really something that's overblown. You know, Ryan Nielsen ran a ton of man coverage in Atlanta. He comes from New Orleans, who ran a ton of, you know, man coverage. Obviously, he'll adapt to his personnel, and there'll be more zone, et cetera, but that's really the kind of coach that he is. I think you'll see more uh, four-man fronts instead of, you know, the five-man, which is, you know, the three interior defense linemen and two outside linebackers, I think it's said. You'll see two ends and two defensive tackles and multiple line uh, linebackers and, you know, lighter boxes in general so i do think that you'll see some different things you know just foundationally but i also think they're going to do a lot of similar things in terms of blitzing you know aggressive uh multiple that kind of stuff john shipley of jaguar report here with us on 1010 xl in jacksonville john we didn't speak and uh, since mike caldwell was fired uh warranted in your opinion or was he kind of the fall guy I, I think and I think both honestly I think he was the fall guy and the defensive staff were fall guys in general but on the other hand I think when you only fire defensive coaches and you only walk away from two assistant offensive coaches one of whom was an assistant position coach and you know the other of whom was a running backs coach 
I think that makes the defense look more like fall guys considering how the defense played compared to the offense over the entire course of the year. So I do think, you know, you watch that defense over the second half of the season, and they did have some legitimate issues, you know, especially in that Week 18 game. You know Tennessee's going to run the ball, and you can't stop the run. You really get manhandled at the point of attack by, you know, probably the team that had the most offensive line woes in the NFL last year. So I, I think it was one of those rare cases where, one, I think it was right to fire him, but two, it, the way they did it, the optics, does kind of make them look like scapegoats. There's been a lot of stuff, John, since you and I talked three weeks ago, so let's dive in to some of the stuff. And I'll begin with the defensive coaches, one of whom apparently spoke to Josina Anderson, a well-respected NFL reporter, who said the problems are staying and the solutions are leaving, implying that whatever was wrong with the Jaguars was not the guys that were fired. Uh, we don't know who did that. I think we all have our guesses as to who did that. It presumably was one of the coaches that was let go. Uh, sour grapes, in your opinion, or is there something to that? I mean, obviously, I think, you know, that kind of comment is something that's fueled by, you know, when an emotional type of firing happens. But I, I, I do think it's interesting that you saw the Jaguars regress in nearly, you know, every important metric on offense when – the only real differences personnel-wise was, you know, they traded out Marvin Jones with Calvin Ridley and Jawan Taylor for Anton Harrison. It, there's really been nothing that signifies exactly why the Jaguars' offense got worse this past season, but it did get worse. You know, it felt worse. It looked worse. The numbers say it's worse. Uh, everything says that it took a step back, but it appears so far there's at least minimal changes made, you know, toward that side of the ball. You know, if they bring Calvin really back, you know, how many spots on the offense are they even really changing outside of maybe, you know, shuffling a couple offensive offensive line spots? So I think maybe that's where it's perhaps warranted. Last week, Trent Baalke held a press conference, and he needed to. I'll give him credit because he hadn't yet, and I commend him for holding a press conference. And, look, I think if people did not like Baalke going into that, there was no reason to like what he said. They were going to find flaw with whatever he said. So it was almost a no-win situation in a way – but good grief, man. I know you were there. He did not get a lot of points in his column among the fan base during that press conference. What were your biggest takeaways from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, you know, I've been a critic of Trent Bulky, you know, in the past, you know, for his draft record, free agency moves, et cetera. He didn't even honestly say a lot that I personally disagreed with in terms of what their issues were. But I, I do think some of the interesting things that he said was, you know, he said over and over how he thought the offense lacked an identity and how he thought they needed to do a better job of getting rookies, you know, more up to speed and ready to play. He said that they're in a developmental league, which means he doesn't think that they can wait on picks for a year or two. Well, there's several cases where the Jaguars did that this year. You know, Tank Bigsby barely played. Britton Strange was their number three tight end. I mean, even their other picks, you know, Antonio Johnson didn't play until later into the year. You see Abdullah was a healthy and active all year. Parker Washington didn't play until late in the year because of injuries. Elijah Cooks, you know, didn't really play at all, et cetera. You know, there there were a lot of rookies who, you know, it seemed like at least coaching decision-wise just didn't play a lot this year. That was my big thing. That's where it seemed like if you're going to point to maybe any disconnect, I mean, he's not, he's in my opinion, plainly saying that there was a disconnect in terms of how they acquired these players and their vision for getting them, you know, developing them and what role they would play and what actually happened. And when he says, you know, the offensive issues are issues like identity, et cetera, those were the most interesting things to me because that to me says where at least he sees what the biggest issues are. And 
you know, I, I, I think I wrote after the press conference that I see cornerback as one of their biggest needs, but if he thinks that the man coverage thing is overblown, it doesn't matter if he's right or not. What matters is that he thinks it because, you know, he, he's the decision maker. So if he thinks that, then, hey, maybe corner is not as big of a need. So that's just how really I see some of the things that he said. John Shipley of Jaguar Report. He said during the press conference, Trent Balky, that is last week, said that he and Doug Peterson are maybe having better communication than they've ever had. That's what he's stating publicly. Do you believe that, John Shipley? I mean, I, I personally have no reason, you know, not to believe it. I'm not one of these people who, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say there's animosity if I haven't heard of anything. And I know I personally haven't heard of anything like that. What I will say is when you don't meet expectations in the NFL, you know, there's always, you know, going to be rumblings or there's always going to be people who aren't happy. And that's when you have to have tough conversations, et cetera. But I don't see any different as any other, you know, working relationship, you know, things aren't always, always going to be, you know, at the highest of highs and the best of best. So I personally don't know anything on that front, but I, I do think that, you know, when you get down to it, you have the season the Jaguars had, there's probably not a lot of people happy. You know, what I don't understand is, and I agree with you, by the way, I haven't heard anything either, but the optics last week weren't great. You had bulky out there by himself. You could have not ended the speculation, but you could have put at ease some thoughts on that topic by simply having Peterson and Balky there together. Do you think the Jaguars missed an opportunity there? No, because I will say the one thing is the Jaguars were consistent. They did the same thing last year. You, you know, after the playoff loss against the Chiefs, you know, Doug Peterson talked the next day, and then I think Balky talked a day or two, you know, later. So they, they can't at least say that. Yeah, this is what we do. We let the head coach speak for the team, etc., and then we at least get the general manager's perspective. So personally, I, I I would have done too what they did, just because it's kind of consistent with what you've done in the past. And yeah, you know, we'll, we'll we'll probably the next time you hear from both of them together is right before the draft. But they'll both obviously talk at the combine and you know throughout the offseason, etc., things like that. So you know, somebody will definitely ask Doug Peterson about you know some of the things you know the the answers he gave on identity and developing rookies and you know those will definitely be some interesting answers to hear uh, him give as we begin to look ahead john to the off season that is to come i guess the main question is josh allen and the fact that according to balky at least of last of last thursday negotiations had not started yet i think caught people off guard i think the allen camp responded the next day that they weren't exactly happy that that was addressed to the media uh, what's your take on that whole situation? Yeah, you know, I, I personally wasn't surprised uh, to hear him say that they haven't started because, you know, I, I said on ten ten, you know, probably an hour before uh, the press conference that when asked about Josh Allen that, yeah, you know, contract negotiations haven't really started on that front. It just seems that that's the Jaguars, you know, front office how they operate. They get to that stuff, you know, doesn't necessarily have to happen, you know, right the second you know, right around the Super Bowl because they do have time. They do have, obviously, until, you know, second or so week of uh, March to, until guys become free agents. And then in, in terms of Josh, you know, just it's always seemed like he was going to be this year's Evan Ingram who, you know, probably gets franchise tagged and that gives them until July to figure something out because I don't think this is an easy deal for them. I think if you're Josh Allen, that $100 million is probably the absolute floor considering what other pass rushers are getting and you're probably asking for even more than that. And, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, Balky and the Jaguars, you know, necessarily want to pay that exact price. So 
I, I think he gets tagged and they still try to get a deal done, you know, until July, et cetera. But I also get why Alan Camp, you know, in that report by Mike Florio said they were unhappy. I would also get that perspective. If, you know, at, the season's been over for a couple of weeks. At least get some communication on what's going on and what your stance is before the first time you hear about it is, you know, through Twitter. Final moments with John Shipley of Jaguar Report. Now, if Josh Allen is given the tag, and I think a lot of us at this point believe Josh Allen will be tagged, what does that mean for Calvin Ridley's future? Yeah, you know, that's that, that's definitely a tough one. I think that means Calvin Ridley is likely to become a free agent, and that necessarily doesn't mean that he's not going to or couldn't, you know, re-sign with the Jaguars. He absolutely could, you know, come back to the Jaguars. I do think that they made a mistake not having a deal done with Allen at some point during the season because that would have given you the power to ensure that you don't have any chance of losing Ridley because I, I think the Jaguars definitely want Ridley back. I think Ridley probably wants to be back. You know, when he said at the end of the season that he doesn't want to learn a new playbook or new team and stuff, I believe him, you know, when he says things like that. I think he's a very genuine person, especially in the answers that he gives. So I think he wants to be back, but obviously the money has to make sense. And I, my expectation is that he becomes a free agent, but he does uh, ultimately return. But, you know, maybe a team is willing to throw him, you know, kind of contract that he couldn't refuse. Final moments, John, a couple of quick hitters. Anton Harrison on a rookie deal. It would make a lot of sense uh, to me if you think Anton Harrison can play left tackle, you would save a lot of money by moving him over there and maybe sending Cam Robinson down the road. And I like Cam, but if it's a money issue and if that's what it boils down to, there's a lot of savings to potentially be had there. What's your thought on Anton Harrison and the left tackle question? My only thing is I feel like it creates another need. I I feel like you have a – above average, you know, good starting quality right tackle who can be a pro bowl caliber right tackle in my opinion, Harrison. And I think even if you get, you know, walk away from the Cam Robinson contract, I still think you have a starting level caliber left tackle in walk a little, you know, before walk a little was being moved, you know, from tackle to guard, tackle to guard, you know, he was having a strong season at left tackle. He played well the year before at left tackle. I think if you keep him at left tackle, over the course of a season, I think, you know, you're getting starting caliber play. I'm not sure you get the same from him at right tackle. So I think Anton Harrison could play left tackle, but I think you create one more question mark, one more area you need to divert resources to if that's the path that you go. It's interesting to see what they do there because Cam is owed a lot of money, but you could argue Cam was probably their best offensive lineman when he was out there this year. Uh, They're going to have to make some tough choices, as you said. Rayshon Jenkins. Foley Fadakasi, Darius Williams. Who are some of the veterans that may be let go because of cost-cutting? Yeah, I think Rayshon Jenkins is one of them. You know, they don't save a ton of money, you know, necessarily if they get out of that contract. There's obviously some dead cap involved too, but they have a young guy who's ready to start in Antonio Johnson. Then they also have death at that position. Andrew Wingard, you know, is a good number three safety. Uh, I know Daniel Thomas is a free agent. I would expect they want to bring Daniel Thomas back, you know, especially for what he does in special teams. But that's just continued depth at safety. So that's one move I expect. You know, Cam Robinson's another. Brandon Sheriff's an interesting one because I, I honestly think that he had a strong season. You know, maybe not as great of a season as a run blocker, but overall I thought he had a solid season. But he is one of your most expensive players, and you have to ask – you know, is the production you're getting from him equal to, you know, what it would save you if you got rid of him or equal to what he's making right now? John Shipley of Jaguar Report. John, final question. 
We'll do it again, hopefully, around the time free agency begins. I know you got a, a personal matter you'll be attending to, a little honeymoon <laughs> action, which I know will we'll yes, work sir. around that, buddy. Congratulations again Appreciate on that big it. day coming up. Um, Josh Allen, Calvin Ridley, that's all the talk. What about Ezra Cleveland, Jamal Agnew? How would you assess maybe the other unrestricted free agents as far as priorities the Jaguars need to keep before March 11th? Yeah, no, I think Ezra Cleveland is somebody that they do ultimately bring back. I mean, you already burned, you know, a six-round pick into him. I wouldn't imagine that it's going to be that expensive to bring him back. You know, like he's a young guard with, you know, starting experience, but I don't think that, you know, him hitting the open market, he's going to be somebody who, you know, is really resetting the market or getting a large deal or anything like that. So I think you can retain him really on a reasonable deal and still continue to invest in other pieces, you know, on the offensive line. And then, you know, then they have some questions, you know, you have some key backups, uh, especially, you know, guys like Trey Herndon, Tyler Shatley, you know, you mentioned Jamal Agnew coming up. Agnew is an interesting one because, you know, I, I think he's one of the best special teamers in the NFL. You know, he's shifted some games completely just in his time alone with the Jaguars as a special teamer. And then, you know, last year I, he made some big plays as a receiver, you know, down the stretch, you know, just his vertical speed alone. But I do wonder if they're willing to pay a returner that much money when, you know, you're looking at some of the moves they have to make, you know, one of the areas you can save is at returner because, you know, you have a six rounder in Parker Washington who flashed in that area last year. John Shipley of Jaguar Report. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Again, free agency, March 11th is the day negotiations can begin. You can officially start signing guys on March 13th. So we're only six weeks away from that. John, tell us about the Jaguar Report podcast. Where can people find it? Yeah, you can find it on Apple, Spotify. You can find us on YouTube at Jaguar Report. You know, we, we go two times a week during the season. Now we're in the off season. We're going to try to hit every Wednesday. So we'll be back on Wednesday with some thoughts on, you know, what Gus and I both heard, you know, when uh, Trent Balky spoke last week. John, you're the man, brother. Always appreciate the time. We'll talk soon. Appreciate you, my friend. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. And then there were two. The NFC champion, San Francisco 49ers, and the AFC champion, Kansas City Chiefs, Super Bowl 58, out in Las Vegas. Well, this is regular hat for Kansas City. What is this? Four out of five years now the Chiefs find themselves in the biggest game on the planet. With that, let's go out to Kansas City. My buddy Seren Petro, Sports Radio 810 in the Kansas City area, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Seren, how we doing? Uh, doing well, yeah. Uh, you know, Four out of five Super Bowls, six straight conference championship games. And think about this, uh, the two that they lost, they lost in overtime. So they're two overtime losses away from going to six straight Super Bowls. It's been pretty amazing. Saran, you're as close to the Chiefs as anybody I know. You cover them every day. You have a great program out there in Kansas City. You watch these guys all the time. Are you even in awe that they just continue to win these games? Yeah, and I think this year, uh, without a doubt, has been their their toughest road. First of all, according to you know uh, the Football Outsider DVOA, their path should they win a championship uh, will now be the toughest one that anybody's faced uh, because of how tough their AFC road was. They faced the three biggest point differentials in the NFL or in the 
AFC, and now they're getting what DVOA says is the best team in the NFC and one of the best teams in football, maybe the best team in football. It was either the 49ers or Ravens that uh, seem to get all the uh, all the rankings and have all the analytics going their way. So, you know, it was their worst record. It's their worst offensive addition that they've had in the Patrick Mahomes era. It doesn't look like the other ones. And I think that's the testament to Mahomes and the testament to Andy Reid, that they're doing it a different way. Uh, testament to Brett Beach, their general manager as well, that – you know, they have they have played the market and built their football team the best way that they can, regardless of what it is uh, they really needed. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've you know, been effective in the market of just building the best collection of talent and then letting their coaching staff put it together and, and form a team. And it's it's been amazing to watch. And I think this is the one that, you know, personally, I, I didn't have I had them winning in the first game, I had them winning in the second game, didn't have them beating the Baltimore Ravens. And my statement beforehand, before the playoffs started, was they're good enough to beat anybody in the NFL, but I don't think they're good enough to win four games against four playoff-caliber opponents. So uh, it's been remarkable this run this season. Soren Petro, Sports Radio 810 in Kansas City. Soren, I go back to Christmas Day. The Las Vegas Raiders come into Arrowhead, really push the Chiefs all over the field, and at that point, the AFC West was in serious question. I mean, we're talking Christmas just a little over a month ago. How did we get here? How did this happen over the last five weeks? You know, I, I think that was really the wake-up call. They were really sloppy on offense, had a hard time getting the plays in uh, on time, and, and were getting to the last scrimmage with just a few seconds. And so they made a, a real concerted effort to simplify things and make sure that whatever they did, that they were getting out of the huddle and giving the offense time to get lined up and, and survey the defense and, you know, be able to do all the things that they want to do. And so I think – that, to me, is the way I've described it is, you know, up until that point, you know, Andy Reid had really tried to coach this team up into what he wanted it to be and was trying to get everybody to reach their ceilings. And I think that was the game where he said, okay, that's great. We've done our best to get to where we want to go. Now we've got to acknowledge where we are, and we've got to coach this team based upon what it is. They lean on the defense more. They understand that the defense can't be out there all day, so they – try to run a little more clock. They've run the ball more. They try to give their defense a bit of a break. They understand that punting's not the worst thing in the world. And don't give up. Don't have bad turnovers that, you know, take away three points. Harrison Bucker is pretty much an automatic three points every time you send him out there. So once you get into field goal range, don't lose those three points that you basically have in your pocket. And I, I think since they've started playing that way, good complimentary football and kind of embracing a new way to win, uh, they've maximized uh, what talents they do have. You know, and to that point, we'll get to Mahomes and Kelsey and Reed in a moment, but Steve Spagnolo, right? I mean, did not work out for him as a head coach, yet some guys are just better coordinators than they are head coaches for whatever reason. And at this time of year, Steve Spagnolo is one of the best defensive coordinator minds that we've seen in recent NFL uh, memory. I mean, the guy every year has that defense ready to the point that Lamar Jackson in Baltimore got so frazzled that they dropped back to throw it 82% of the time uh, in the AFC Championship game against this Kansas City defense. Boy, what a job Spags has done year in and year out in the month of January. Yeah, and because he's in his 60s, he may not get another head coaching job, and he may be exactly what you said, a guy that's just a better coordinator than head coach, although I will stick up for his time in St. Louis from the standpoint that he had basically a broken down Sam Bradford as his quarterback. And yeah, I'm always amazed, and I think it started to change here lately in the NFL, you know, it used to be like you know, whoever the Super Bowl coordinators were, that's who everybody wanted as their coach. Well, they were also usually the most talented teams. And I think now, you know, owners are starting to understand that 
you know, the skill is winning when you don't have Patrick Mahomes, right? Like, and that's where I think Andy Reid has the Hall of Fame resume because he won with Donovan McNabb. He went to four conference championship games in a row with the Philadelphia Eagles, went to one Super Bowl. He went to the playoffs every year but one with the Kansas City Chiefs before he had uh, Patrick Mahomes. He did that with Alex Smith. You know, that, that's the mark of success. Winning when you have Tom Brady, it, it's not easy, but it's certainly easier. And I, and I think that's one of the things, you know, Steve Spagnuolo didn't get that shot with his Patrick Mahomes. If he were a head coach and had Patrick Mahomes, I bet he'd be pretty good, right? So I, I think, you know, his ability to, you know, just really compliment what the Chiefs have done. He didn't complain when he didn't have as much talent. And when the Chiefs had this high-powered offense that went up and down the field and put his defense back out there quickly, he just went out and did his job and has always maximized uh, what he wanted to do. And they have slowly, over time, with the draft, built their their defense into one of the youngest defenses uh, in football and arguably the best. I know the Ravens had the best numbers, but when you see them go head-to-head, uh, you can make a real case that Steve Spagnuolo's schemes, coupled with what is just a great, very underrated secondary uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs, plus good at all three levels. Uh, yeah, it's it's arguably the best defensive unit in the NFL. And Steve Spagnuolo and his multiple looks and his ability to coach and teach his guys all those looks is, is one of the real reasons why that defense is so good and why the Chiefs are where they are today. A couple of more from my buddy Seren Petro of Sports Radio 810 in Kansas City. Seren, we're getting into historic territory with the offensive guys. Let's begin with Travis Kelsey. You and I have talked many times this year. He's 34, right? Father time catches up with everybody. And yet Travis Kelsey in the playoffs has been darn near unstoppable. He just passed Jerry Rice for all-time receptions in the NFL in the postseason. I mean, when you pass Jerry Rice, that, that that's a, an eye-opening statement. Uh, Travis Kelsey playing his best football of the year right now. Yeah, pass Jerry Rice in, in receptions. Uh, he's still, I think, it's 400 yards behind him in yards, and he's two or three touchdowns behind him. But I'll point out that Jerry Rice accomplished his numbers in 29 playoff games. Uh, Travis Kelsey has passed him in receptions in 21. So eight fewer games. And the only guy in front of him, two of those receiving categories, is Jerry Rice. And there's no one in front of him. He just passed Jerry Rice, as you said. So uh, it is remarkable. And he has been the Robin to Patrick Mahomes' Batman through this entire run. And, you know, that's going to be a day when he when he walks away or when he can't do it at a high level, which we thought we were seeing a little bit of this year. You know, it's going to be a little bit scary. What does Patrick Mahomes do without a security blanket? It'll still be very good, but it, it will be an adjustment. And they'll be certainly hard-pressed to go find a guy that is as good as Travis Kelsey. And I think the idea that Kelsey is done or over the hill, you know, he's declining physically. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I think we've seen that that week that he took off in the final week against the Chargers. And by the way, gave up an opportunity. He needed only 16 yards for his eighth consecutive 1,000-yard season. No tight end has had more than three consecutive 1,000-yard seasons until Kelsey came along and did seven. He could have been selfish, could have gone out there, got his 16 yards, got his eighth consecutive 1,000-yard season. But, you know, he said, look, I I need the rest. And that rest has done him a world of good. He looks like the old Travis Kelsey right now. And and I think let's not underestimate what Rasheed Rice has done. He has given the Chiefs a legitimate threat. And I think we've seen the Bills and Ravens kind of come at it and say, Rasheed Rice is the guy we've got to take away. Travis Kelsey might beat us, you know, might be death by a thousand cuts. But the guy that can make the bigger plays is Rasheed Rice. And so they focus their attention there, put their best cover guy on him. And we see that Travis Kelsey – uh, can certainly still do a lot of damage 
if you don't decide that he's going to be the number one option you want to take away. I shake my head every time I see Mahomes do something. He made a couple of plays against Baltimore. And when you think you've seen everything at Patrick Mahomes' arsenal, he'll do something like that. Again, you're around the guy every day. I mean, do you do you just look at Mahomes and say, wow, does he still amaze you? Yes. Um, you know, you see it time and time again. And, you know, he's kind of like that adage. Every time you watch a game, you're likely to see something you've never seen before. You know, look from, you know, we, we know some of the stuff he's done in the past, the left-handed pass. He pulled that out again this year when he was uh, under pressure, rolling to his left and needed to just get the ball beyond the uh, line of scrimmage. So it wouldn't be a, a, a uh, intentional grounding. And he threw it left-handed again, you know, the, his ability to throw from all angles. You know, I said, Patrick Mahomes is taking the the adage when I hear somebody say, well, this quarterback, he, he doesn't have the footwork. He's got to work on his footwork. I, I now believe that that's a cop-out. <laughs> you know, that that's just that, – that, that's draft speak that people like to bring to the equation. You know, Patrick Mahomes has that rare ability to get his upper body, get his torso, get his arm into a throwing position no matter where he's working. And if you watch the quarterback uh, series on Netflix, you'll see it's something he practices. It's something he works at. Yes, there's a lot of God-given ability, but he works – on his flexibility, on his core strength, on his ability to rotate and create arm velocity without being able to get his legs uh, involved in it. that That's what allows him to be so elusive in, in the backfield, yet still deliver the football on time and to where he wants to go. And I think it's amazing, too, what he doesn't get enough credit for is his intelligence and his unbelievable spatial awareness. He just understands where everybody is on the field and where they're going to be and where the ball is going to be when he lets it go. And so even when he's throwing the ball away, there are times he flips it out where you see other guys that they recognize maybe that they can't get the ball to someone and they end up throwing it somewhere where someone can come over and pick it. He always seems to be able to get it near a receiver, but into a part of the field where there's no one there. It's just, it really is just amazing. His total control of the game uh, and his total understanding of all game situations. You know, Andy Reid complimented him after the AFC championship game for taking the sacks, understanding that the offense wasn't clicking that day. It's certainly not in the second half and that they needed that clock to run. So instead of throwing it away and avoiding a sack, he went ahead and took the sack because he understood at this time the clock is more important than the yards I'll lose. So instead of throwing it away like he normally would, he went ahead and just ate it, took the sack, and kept the clock running uh, to get that game over as fast as possible. He's truly amazing and checks every box you could want a guy to check at the quarterback position. Yeah, we hope Trevor Lawrence was looking at some of that because Lawrence had a lot of those problems with clock management this year here in Jacksonville. Final moments, Seren Petro, Sports Radio 810 in Kansas City. And that gets me to Andy Reid. I mean, Tyreek Hill leaves, Eric Bieniemy leaves, but it's still the trio, right? It's still Kelsey, Mahomes, and Andy Reid. A win against San Francisco in Super Bowl 58, Seren, and I think we're talking about Andy Reid being in legit conversation with Bill Belichick for one of, if not the greatest head coach of all time. Yeah, for me, I'm already there in, in having that conversation. If you want to say he hasn't quite got past him, you know, I'll listen to that. Six championships for Bill Belichick is amazing. What I think stands out for Andy Reid and what the Patrick Mahomes era has done is when everybody was talking about, well, he didn't know how to manage the clock and he didn't know he can't win the big games. I'm going to tell you, you know what manages the clock? Great quarterbacks, right? That's how you manage the clock. If you're sitting there thinking your coach doesn't get down the field fast enough, he doesn't do A, B, or C. And I can tell you, Doug Peterson, who's got a championship ring on his finger, and by the way, won it uh, down the stretch with Nick Foles. He knows how to manage the clock. Coaches know how to manage the clock. Good coaches know how to manage the clock. But they need that instrument. They need that quarterback that recognizes checking it down to the running back in the middle of the field, 
with, you know, a minute 20 to go in one timeout and we're still 70 yards away from a touchdown or 40 yards away from a field goal is irrelevant. Better to throw the football away or take chunks. And, you know, I'll say one of the best plays Patrick Mahomes has made was last year against the Buffalo Bills in the regular season where he got the ball back. I can't remember if he was down three or four, but a little over a minute to go. And all of the Chiefs fans expected, okay, we're going to go down, we're going to get the points, and we're going to win this game. This is what Patrick Mahomes does. And on the first pass, he threw an interception. And he threw an interception because he wasn't taking plays that were just going to kill the clock. Alex Smith had the intention of going down the field, but Alex Smith would look around and then run and get tackled in the middle of the field. And 35 seconds would drain off the clock. 28 seconds would drain off the clock when he'd throw it over the middle for a four-yard gain. All of a sudden, you look up, you had 151 and three timeouts, and you look up, and now you've got 42 seconds. You're at your own 41, and you only have one timeout left. Patrick Mahomes understands the game situation that I have to go down the field. And if I throw a pick and we lose, we lose. But it doesn't matter if we you know, lose with no time on the clock at their 40 or we lose with a minute 10 on the clock and me trying to get us down the field. We have to go down the field. And, you know, I think Andy Reid has always understood that, and he's always had receivers that were open down there. It's just you have the quarterback that sees the window, sees the opportunities, and is willing to take up the risk tolerance to another level and try to make those plays. And Patrick Mahomes has that. He's always dialed into that situation. So, you know, Andy Reid's success, massive success before Patrick Mahomes is now validated by the fact that he's got his Hall of Famer and he's doing things that, you know, only one or two other teams or no other team has ever done. And for me, it proves that body of work beforehand is now entirely validated by what he does with the Hall of Famer. And I think it is a relevant discussion. It's either him or it's Bill Belichick. And when you look at Bill Belichick, who's a sub-500 coach and is one and two in the postseason without Tom Brady in his entire career. And it's not that they were leaving Cleveland, which was the old as well. You know, they, they were moving to Baltimore. That's what got Bill Belichick. Uh, that, that's bull, right? Without Tom Brady, he's been an entirely different coach before him and after him. And that's not the case with Andy Reid. He was incredibly successful at two different teams without Patrick Mahomes. This just validates how good he is as a head coach. It's tough to argue that. Final moments with Seren Petro. Seren, as we wrap up, all right, if they beat San Francisco, if they get another Super Bowl, there is conversation out there about the future of Travis Kelsey and the future of Andy Reid. If they win, Saran, are both of those guys back next year? Uh, you know, Travis Kelsey said at the podium uh, just a couple of weeks ago that he was planning on being back, that he had a lot more football left in him and he was going to play. So you can say things to just kind of deflect the question. Maybe he will consider it. Maybe he was just saying that so he didn't have to answer the question anymore. But I believe what he said. He has said previously he wants to play as long as he can. And so I'll take those two comments and say that Travis Kelsey will be back. With Andy Reid, I, I to a degree understand it, but largely I think you've got guys that are paid to be information guys, and sometimes there's no information to give. Uh, last year it was Jay Glazer who took a comment from Andy Reid when asked, uh, you know, are, are you, would you consider retiring at the end of the year? He said, listen, we're coaching now. I'll consider that later. And that report became Andy reconsidering retirement at the end of the year. And I'm going to tell you, the comment was not made with that intention. The comment was made, don't ask me that question now. We'll worry about that afterwards. He's made no such comment, but I think you've got people like Mike Florio that want to put things out there and put these kind of vague statements so that if Andy Reid, who's 65 years old, would decide to call it quits, which guys have with his success level, you can point back and say, see, I said this four or five weeks ago. I talked to people in the Chiefs organization. I said, listen, I hate even asking you this because I personally believe Andy Reid is a coach. I interviewed him first time uh, in Kansas City after he came to the Chiefs, and he just lost his son, and he just had the worst season 
of his career. And I said, Andy, a lot of people say you should take a year and recharge your batteries. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Seren, I'm a football coach. It's what I do. Let's roll. And I think that's always been his mindset. I think Andy Reid will coach until he can't physically coach anymore. And I think his approach is, I'm not talking about that now. Will he evaluate at the end of the year? Yeah, I think he will. And there may be something that I don't know, but the team, people on the team told me, look, unless Clark Hunt is talking to people, and Clark Hunt has never been a leak in this organization, but unless Clark Hunt has been told something by Andy Reid that we don't know, nothing has been said in this building by Andy Reid, who's very much a communicator with his coaches and his front office and all the people there, nothing has been said about him hanging it up at the end of the year. So it gets slow. I expect this to be a theme again this week, two weeks of having only two teams to talk about, and guys are paid to have information. And when there's no information, they're going to write something. So I expect this theme to be a theme again. But I would be very surprised unless he has some kind of health condition that arises or has arisen that will keep him from, A, just being healthy enough in his life, or B, be physically able to get to the practice field. He does not move well. He's had knee surgeries. If for some reason he couldn't get out to the practice field, couldn't put in the long hours in the office, then I think at that point he would retire. But I think there has been absolutely, according to the people I've talked to, no indication whatsoever given by Andy Reid that this will be his last year. Seren Petro, Sports Radio 810 in Kansas City. Absolutely terrific stuff. Seren, I know how busy you are. Thank you for taking time out, my friend. We'll do it again soon. Ryan, you're the man. Anytime, buddy. Love being on with you. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. Super Bowl 58 on Sunday, February the 11th. It will be the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. The two teams remaining 32 started to remain and one will hoist the Lombardi Trophy on the 11th day of February. With that, when it comes to San Francisco, our guy out in the Bay Area is Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jose, how you doing? I'm doing good, my friend. It's crazy how the 49ers pulled that out of the hat, huh? Hey, two weeks in a row, Jose. I mean, you and I talked last week prior to the Detroit game after the Green Bay game, and I'm not sure the Packers – didn't outplay San Francisco, yet they found a way to win in the fourth quarter. And, man, the same thing. I'm not sure if Detroit didn't outplay San Francisco. Yet again, San Francisco finds a way in the fourth quarter, and they're now NFC champions. Yeah, and that goes to show why they're the number one seed in an elite team, right? That just can't give them – just can't give the 49ers, you know, your own one to two best quarters or even three. You have to literally consistently be that. And for the Lions, all they were was a first half. And the Packers, they were essentially that for three quarters. Um, but that just goes to show, like, how the 49ers really are this team that, like, hey, they're, they're the top seed for a reason. Like, you can't – they're good enough where they don't need their A or even B game. I mean, like, against the, against the Packers, I gave them, like, overall, like, a C, C-minus type of game. And against the Lions, it was, like, a C-plus, B-minus. And but that, that was not anywhere near their best games. That was – both of those games are in their, like, bottom five, bottom six you know, or even including the losses. Like, it was just like, man, what is this team? <laughs> what is this team looking looking like compared to what, we, what we've seen throughout the throughout the course of the year? But I, I just say that, you know, luckily at least they were down, like, at halftime and not in the fourth quarter because if that was the case, there's no way they were pulling that right out of the hat. I was almost close to feeling in doubt that they were going to lose the Lions only because, again, it was halftime. I was like, okay, there's a chance, but, you know, how are you going to get these adjustments? Because it really was that Lions rushing attack like it was against the Packers, 
that the rushing defense could not could not do anything to slow them down. There was no and it was no surprise that they were going to do that. They have two electric running backs in Samir Gibbs and uh, David Montgomery. So, yeah, that was just – they just basically just cannot continue to do this going to the Super Bowl because <laughs> right now I'm going to say, like, there's definitely a little concern with this area right now. Jose, the reaction among you and your colleagues out there, obviously it's gotten a lot of play since the game, just about Dan Campbell and the fourth downs. And, I mean, look – Detroit did San Francisco, to me, a lot of favors in the way they managed that game. What was the reaction among the 49ers faithful out there among the way Detroit handled that? Yeah, I think there's a, kind of a fair split in terms of uh, the 49ers actually you know, persevering and doing their own things. Um, and the other side, which I'm actually leaning more heavily on, is but the Lions gave that away. Dan Campbell was a fool for that fourth and two. And, and I get it, like, oh, you know, it's what we do. It's what we do here. We're going fourth down. It's like, yeah, look, I get it. It's what you do. But what he kind of did was take a baseball standpoint, right? It's like, hey, here's the spreadsheet. We're going to do this all the way through the regular season, and we're going to do what we do in the postseason. It's like, no, you need adjustments. At some point, you need managerial adjustments. And in this game, you need to read the room, read the situation. You guys are up by 14. You could have gone up by 17 after the Niners just cut it down to 14 in the previous drive. And what you do right there is more risk than reward, right? It's like it's, it's like you risk just a first down for what? And then you, and then you fail that. It, it, it's essentially a turnover, right? It's a turnover. That's going to feed the team, to feed the defense, and swing the momentum. It's like, okay, we got a huge stop. This easy could have been a score. Let's go down the field and beat them. And, you know, it's not like the Niners were really pushing. It's not like the 49ers were really dominating on that ensuing drive after. But all it took was that one lucky, incredible outlier play from Brandon Ayuk to really, like, really put the momentum on the 49ers' side. So, yeah, to me, I felt like it was definitely, like, more heavily skewed towards Dan Dan Campbell giving the 49ers life. And, heck, there's no denying, that was the turning point. I mean, even if both were coming off the field, I saw him in the post-game interview. He said, yeah, I think the time, like, I really swung it together was when we made that fourth and two stop. And it's like, well, (laughs) you know, you're kind of a fool for not taking that, Campbell. Just take the three points. You know, you're already up. It just reached desperation. You know, he went for it on that fourth and two, but doesn't go for it on fourth down uh, going into the half when he's actually at the, at the, at the touchdown, at the end zone. That, that made no sense to me. Yeah, it was a bad day. I like Dan Campbell a lot, but it was a bad day for him on Sunday. Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com, here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. All right, obviously the greats, Joe Montana, Steve Young, other guys like Colin Kaepernick, Jimmy Garoppolo, and now Brock Purdy adds his name to the list of got of quarterbacks that have taken San Francisco to the Super Bowl. Jose, if Brock Purdy wins the game, if they're hoisting the Lombardi Trophy, kind of where does this put him in San Francisco lore among the great quarterbacks in that franchise's history? Yeah, he definitely supplants. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, Jeff Garcia, Colin Kaepernick, he'll definitely be quarterback number three, and I think especially because of his story, right? And it's not just for the 49ers. I think, like, NFL lords as well, right? You know, you, you were the Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick in the draft, and what I like to also say is he was a fringe, undrafted free agent, a fringe, undrafted free agent. He literally was minutes away from being that. It was insane to me, like, how close to the difference is, which actually, if he was an undrafted free agent, he'd be getting paid more right now. So, but he, it's just it's just a crazy story of how this would be about how a guy who really no one expected the point guys didn't expect him to be this either. You know, like I don't care what anybody says, they didn't expect this. If they did, they would have drafted him earlier. They, they they didn't know that. You 
know, that's why they went into that 2023 year. Trey Lance is their guy. Jimmy Garoppolo is their backup. Um, Brock Purdy is their third stringer. Because if they really believed in Brock Purdy and thought he was more capable, he would have been Trey Lance's direct backup, but he wasn't. And so they really stumbled upon him in the situation, which is funny because they tried so hard for a few seasons to really look for that new quarterback uh, to replace Garoppolo. And it turns out the one that they ended up you know, finding as replacements was the one they weren't even looking for in the first place. So it's just like a crazy story of how it's gone, what he, what he did last year, you know, leading the 49ers to get to the Eagles, uh, uh, get to the NFC Championship against the Eagles, and then now to the Super Bowl. It, it, it's really fascinating and just a crazy story of where he's at, and, and you know, especially how he's doing it. He's not getting carried. He's not necessarily a game manager. I know there's, like, a lot of discourse out there. But, you know, he's not elite either. He's right there in the middle where he's a really good quarterback. This year he's been the sixth, seventh, or eighth best quarterback in my eyes. So, yeah, he, if they get it done easily, he's going to be, like, considered the third best quarterback even with this one Super Bowl. You know, the crazy thing, Jose, and you alluded to it there, the Trey Lance trade was horrific for San Francisco. I mean, it was awful. You could argue that was one of the worst trades in the history of the NFL with what they gave up, and yet it has not affected them – at all such trades have literally altered franchises yet it's as if san francisco did not get affected by it one iota i mean that's crazy to think about it is right because any 80 90 percent of the teams who would have gone through that would have gotten smoked by now kyle sam would have got fired john would have gotten fired but it just goes to show like how well these guys know how to hit in the other rounds how to pick up these spring agents how to get how to how to get the most out of their players Right, and so look. Obviously, when Trey Lance was coming out, I was on board. Like 2021, he should start because he's raw. Right, he hasn't played. Let the kid play, and he barely got any chances. And I was on board of doing that. But it's just you know when you're such a win now roster, it's like can we afford to wait? Is 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 seeing is seeing Trey Lance actually can be that guy worth wasting years of George Kittle, Kyle, Yusek, Trent Williams, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, for all these players, right? And it wasn't worth it. And then Brock Purdy comes in through, you know, coincidence because Lance got hurt, Jimmy Grobble got hurt, and he just shows them something that, like, whoa, we can actually win with this guy. We know we actually just has what he actually can do. So it, it made more sense for the 49ers going into the season, like, hey, I know he has an elbow injury, but basically we know what he can do with this roster in various scenarios, high-pressure scenarios, including the playoffs, whereas why would we keep going with Lance? And so that's something why they moved on with him, and it turns out to be a brilliant idea. You know, thank God Purdy isn't feeling any repercussions from his elbow because now to me, like I've been saying ever since he stepped in the fold, is he's not necessarily an elite quarterback, but he's an optimizing quarterback, meaning now instead of just one or two all-star players like a Kittle or Debo Samuel um, finding impact in the game, with Purdy, every player eats. Kittle eats, Ayuk eats, Debo Samuel eats, McCaffrey eats in a singular game. That never was the case before with Garoppolo or any other quarterback. So, yeah, he's just been a perfectly optimizing figure and it's just working out beautifully for them. And so, yeah, thankfully nothing, none of those picks have gone, you know, to really bite them in the rear end. And now look, now they're looking into this draft with their first-round picks back. <laughs> they're really back in the fold again. A couple of more for Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com. Of course, San Francisco and Kansas City in Super Bowl 58. Jose, a handful of guys on the team were there four years ago when they lost Super Bowl 54. Obviously, George Kittle is the main one. We've seen that video making the rounds, saying on the sideline that night, I'm going to get back here. I'm not going to let this define me. And it's taken four years, but they are back there, and lo and behold, they're playing the same team. 
that beat them in Super Bowl 54. How much does that outcome four years ago for the guys that are still there? How much of a motivator will that be coming up for Super Bowl 58? Yeah, I think that should definitely be add a little oomph, right, to their motivation, nice little push. But I, I think no matter who they were facing in the Super Bowl, like, this was going to be it because they were really, like, galvanized. They were hurt, you know, gut-punched after that Super Bowl loss. And, you know, in that year, I actually was actually at the Super Bowl and got to talk to a couple of those players, and they were just really – yeah, they were just really, like – somber but Kittle was the more like upbeat one it's like you know man it is what it is we'll be back here and then sure enough you look four years later they're back here and they've actually been knocking on the door for so many years I think it's not just the loss against the Chiefs and that Super Bowl it's the losses they've suffered through these last four years it's that 2020 year where it was plagued by a plethora of injuries I've never seen before in sports and then 2021 to fail at the end against the Rams to not even have a chance last year against the Eagles because Brock Purdy got hurt on the first drive and now you finally get here, it's like, I think this is one thing that they definitely cannot take for granted. It's like, you guys know how hard it is to get here, how far you've come, how fortunate your innings have been. So I understand that it would be a nice oomph because it's the same team that you lost to last time. But I think, like, it's, it's the fact that you add on other, all, all those other pains and losses that really fuels you maybe even harder than it does that Super Bowl loss. And the combination of them all should really get them locked in. And that's why I think, you know, entering this game, they're the ones facing the most pressure. You know, if the Chiefs lose, no one's going to bat an eye. It's like, all right, cool. Like, they've been to four out of five Super Bowls. They already won two. It's fine. Like, they can afford it because, you know, I think everyone's going to think they're going to be back in the next year or two. Whereas the 49ers, it's like, you guys have been on the doorstep. You know, Brock Purdy isn't going to be on this cheap contract for long. Trent Williams isn't going to be on the team for, you know, he's here. He's already guaranteed next year, but what about all these other players, you know? So, it's it, this is your time now. This is your time to really put it together and really that six Super Bowl. It is their time. It is their great opportunity. But do you believe that if they don't get it done this time around, could there be changes to this roster moving forward? Well, I think I think if they lose this game, it's going to – I think for sure, first and foremost, if the roster-wise in terms of, you know, staff changes, I think they would probably consider a defensive coordinator change because Steve Wilkes, you know, he, he's, he's been fine this year. But what you notice, especially against the Lions, right? It's the run defense. What are you doing? There's no adjustments. All of a sudden, the adjustments come in the second half. And that's been the theme for most of this year, where the defense will let the offense really, like, you know, throw their punches effectively in the first half, and then they come out and they really do sell. And it's like, look, you do that against the Chiefs, you're going to lose. Because they they're, they're have a, best, a really good head coach, head coach, Andy Reid, and you're facing the best quarterback in the league. That's not going to fly. So it would be that and then, you know, they'll be fine at quarterback. I think they would just have to look at what areas are weak, which is like offensive line. You know, defensive line this year has been really underwhelming. Um, they haven't really been getting much sacks. I think they're not even middling a pack, if that. So, yeah, there, there, there definitely has to be some tweaks, some uh, tweaks and little tinkers here that you guys would have to, that they would have to figure out because, really, it, the pressure's on them to win the Super Bowl. They should win the Super Bowl, and I've been saying to you for weeks, there's no excuses to lose, even against one of the greatest quarterbacks and head coaches of all time. Final moments, Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com. Jose, as we begin to wrap up, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago. San Francisco's been great, but they have not been great this year against the AFC, right? They lost to Baltimore. They lost to Cleveland. They lost to Cincinnati. They um, they beat Pittsburgh and they beat Jacksonville, so I believe they're 2-3 and three against the AFC this year. And now here Patrick Mahomes is and Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid and they just look very motivated after winning games against Miami, Buffalo, and, and Baltimore. 
I mean, how do you beat Mahomes? If, if you're San Francisco, how do you beat Andy Reid? What's your game plan going in to try to knock off the defending world champions? Uh, well, first you do is you want to pray. Um, and so hopefully that he gets like a, at least seven throws off and he throws like multiple turnovers. Um, I appreciate but, your honesty on that. It, it, look, it, it's funny because how we just talked about four years ago, what's the what, and I've been saying this to, to many of my readers and you know colleagues is like, the difference between these 49ers and Chiefs teams, 49ers are the better offense, but have a weaker defense. Chiefs, Chiefs have a weaker offense, but a stronger defense. And to me, it's like even though the Chiefs are weaker this year, I think they've only scored 30 points three times this season I saw yesterday. So they're not necessarily a team that can shoot out, but you know the way the 49ers defense, especially these last two games, it's like, what are you doing? Like, I feel like they're going to make the Chiefs look amazing. Like, they're going to make them look normal, and then Travis Kelsey's been kind of turning up. So to me, it's like, it's, to me, if the 49ers can just get three, maybe four drives of like where you hold them, like nothing, maybe even field goals, you'll take that. Because I think it's going to the, the real the real strength of the 49ers, honestly, this year has been in their offense. So it's not so much like what can you do defensively; it's what can you do offensively. Which is keep that guy on the sideline, <laughs> keep him on the sideline. You have one of the best running backs in the league. Probably is going to go down as one of the best running backs of all time, Christian McCaffrey, MVP finalist. You have your two MVP finalists and Purdy and McCaffrey. Lead the way, you know, score the points and hold possession. That's that's really the best way because the way the defense has been looking. You know, especially the last few games, and even the season, they're just, you know, they're good. They're good defense, for sure, top ten. But you know, my home Chiefs offense is surging. I just, I'm just not really feeling at all confident in the Point Niners defense. It's all this is going to have to be won on the Point Niners offense. That's where the head coach resides. That's where all the talent is. So go out there and win the game on your side. Final question, Jose, with the game being in Vegas, obviously dollars make sense. It's going to take a lot of money, but there should be a lot of red for the San Francisco 49ers in that stadium, will there not? Oh, yeah, you say that, but actually when I was in Miami, a plethora of Chiefs fans. It was 80 It was eighty to 20 in favor of Chiefs fans, wow. maybe even 90 to 10. And I, I know it's like, hey, well, Miami, it's, it's a five-hour trip, you know, from the Bay Area. But, like, hey, from Kansas City, what is it, like three, two and a half hours? You know, so, I mean, and, and, and that was in Miami. Vegas is attracting, too. Um, so, to me, it's like uh, maybe there'll be a, a, more of an uptick in 49ers fans. But I just, I, I honestly, I still think it's going to be a Chiefs home game. I'm actually, that was actually in the article of mine because I have videos of, like, how loud the Chiefs came out to of the tunnels versus the 49ers, and it was night and day. So I'm actually expecting it to be a Chiefs home game. Interesting. Jose Sanchez of all49ers.com. Jose, I can't thank you enough. I know you're busy this week, brother. Uh, as always, enjoy the ball game, and we'll see what happens between Kansas City and San Francisco out there in Super Bowl 58. Appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much, Right, Have a brilliant day, man. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. Super Bowl 58 is all set with the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers, but it's already been a pretty interesting offseason around the National Football League with certainly one of the biggest pieces of news happening in Los Angeles. Jim Harbaugh. Back in the National Football League, taking over the L.A. Chargers. Our guy out in L.A. when it comes to the Chargers is Fernando Ramirez of the Sporting Tribune, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Fernando, it's been a little while, man. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for having me on again. And yeah, I know it's been a little bit. Uh, a lot of changes certainly have uh, happened out here in L.A., but uh, but yeah, no, definitely interesting to see the dynamic and everything of, 
of what's been happening in the last few, uh, really ever since they got blown out 63 to 21 by the Las Vegas uh, Raiders in, uh, in the middle of December. And they fired uh, uh, Brandon Staley and uh, Tom Telesco. You know, Brandon Staley, we talked after last year's playoff game. A lot of Charger fans at that point thought it should be over then. They brought him back for 2023, and it was a disaster, right? I mean, they dropped the ball on that. He should have been gone after last season, correct? Well, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of Charger fans will take uh, – We'll take the hurt and everything that they that went on this season. If that meant Jim Harbaugh last year, you would have had to have traded uh, your first your some draft picks for arguably the the one coach that was out there that um, that was worthwhile in Sean Payton. And here it's like, okay, Jim was a, a, a free agent. He had just come off of winning a national championship. And, uh, and I mean, you had your, you had your picks. I mean, Adam Schefter just said on the Pat McAfee show, he believes that Mike Vrabel, uh, would have been the number two. And I, I, I have heard the same thing that Mike left a good impression as well. So, I mean, to have Mike Vrabel, Pete Carroll, Bill Belichick and Jim Harbaugh in the same, uh, I mean, in the same class kind of that, that's unheard of. So I'm sure a lot of Charger fans will take what happened this year for a chance uh, at any four of those guys, but uh, they got their guy and, and uh, they brought in somebody who has a history with their, uh, with their team. Yeah, no, it's a good point about waiting this year for that coaching uh, surplus there in the coaching carousel. Fernando, Jim Harbaugh, what's been the reaction in LA to Harbaugh's arrival? <laughs> well, Charger fans are celebrating. They're excited. Uh, I'm sure. Um, Everybody's been glued to uh, social media, especially because uh, the news came. I mean, when uh, when Atlanta had uh, said that they were going to have a second interview with the Chargers, everybody kind of freaked out. But then Jim pushed it back. He was still in L.A. His wife was out here with him. Usually happy, happy wife, happy life. That usually is a good indication. Uh, but Jim Harbaugh was their guy all along. And, and you could really tell. That was really picking up steam. Uh, Mike Greenberg said last year on uh, the Pat McAfee show that he is a huge fan of Justin Herbert. Everybody saw that clip over the weekend of uh, before the AFC Championship. Uh, he was out there supporting his brother, um, John Harbaugh. And he said, I was starstruck when I met Justin Herbert. He said it with a laugh, obviously, and a chuckle. But you know that those two must be excited. I mean, Jim's never had a quarterback like Justin. I mean, yeah, you could go, you could point at Andrew Luck. But I'm talking about in the NFL, he's never had a quarterback like him. He had Alex Smith, and he had uh, Colin Kaepernick. And, and you go back to what Alex Smith said um, on Monday, on Sunday night in uh, on ESPN, and he said that Jim came in, and he's like, I was a free agent. I thought I was going to leave, and Jim gets hired. And he's like, hey, let's go outside and let's play catch. And he's like, and he starts zipping it. Like, he's like, he starts really throwing the heat. And I'm like, what, what, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, Jim advocates, hey, bring, let's bring him back. Let's do this. We can do this with him. And he said Jim's a great guy, that uh, he's really a motivator, that he's going to pick things up. All the things that you're hearing are positive things, things that Charger fans want to hear. I mean, 
2006, you get the Marlon McCree fumble. Take it back to the Dan Fouts era. You had the freezer bowl. You've had so you've had the 27 to zero to the Jacksonville Jaguars. You've had so many errors, so many mistakes. You've never had a head coach like Jim Harbaugh come in. The Spanos finally, finally um, said enough is enough. We want to win. We have a quarterback that can take us uh, to the promised land. Now let's go get a head coach. And that's exactly what they did. So uh, kudos to the Spanish family who have been called cheap before. They're not going to go spend. Well, they got, went and got their guy. And now uh, supposedly they're spending on uh, defensive coordinator from Michigan. Uh, Harbaugh wants to bring the strength and conditioning coach. Like they're really serious about picking this thing up and, and trying to win uh, a championship, something that the Chargers have never done. And something that Harbaugh said yesterday, there's no Lombardi trophies in college football. So uh, obviously uh, he wants to win one. And 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 I'm sure um, that's the hunger that really brought him back to the NFL is the ability is the wanting to to coach for an, and win uh, a Lombardi trophy. Fernando Ramirez of the Sporting Tribune here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. He covers the Los Angeles Chargers. You mentioned Justin Herbert. I believe this will be the third different head coach Herbert's had in L.A. in a reasonably short amount of time. I mean, this is a big hire, obviously, because I would think, Fernando, and you know better than I do, you're around that team every day. Herbert's got to be getting frustrated with what's been going on out there. He got the long-term extension done last year, but certainly now that he has a quarterback guy like Jim Harbaugh, I imagine Herbert's the happiest he's ever been in L.A. Oh, oh, that there's no doubt, especially because it seems like Jim Harbaugh, from everything that we know in the past, Jim's not going to come in here and be like, hey, Justin, this is all going to be on you. We want you to throw it 70 times. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. No, he's going to try. He's going to try and run the football. He's going to try and do different things so that Justin can succeed and that the whole team can succeed. So that's literally what's key for this team. I thought the Chargers in the past were putting too much on him. In that Jacksonville game, Ryan, you were you you were there. You saw it. They were depending too much on him, and there was no running game. There was nothing that uh, could really help him out. And that's what the Chargers need. They need a uh, they need some somebody that's going to come in here and change that. And, and they need a better offensive line. They're going to need some more weapons. They need tight ends. They need defensive players. They need a lot of things, but Jim Harbaugh is that kind of guy that they could go do that with, and not just that. It feels like he could take the Pete Carroll approach where, remember when Pete Carroll first came in to Seattle, the next three drafts, he basically, I mean, for there was there was a, a hit and miss here and there, but he, he kind of nailed those drafts, especially in the later rounds, because he knew the Richard Shermans, the the Brandon Browners, those kind of guys. So, um, so I, I definitely expect uh, Harbaugh to have strong drafts. Something that the Chargers did not have under Tom Telesco. Yes, there were a couple of hits, but there was a a lot of misses with Tom Telesco. So Justin Herbert right now, um, even if you go back to his uh, days in in Oregon, he had three head coaches in four years, four offensive coordinators in four years. So Justin's been used to this right now. Jim Harbaugh brings stability to Justin Herbert and he brings, can you imagine being in the room when those two start talking ball? Like, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be just uh complete uh, nerds and every, uh, they're just going to nerd out. I think uh, when it comes to all this, but, uh, but yeah, no, 
I, I completely uh, I completely agree that that Justin has to be the happiest man right now in, in on the on the planet because uh, they really have a chance to do a lot of uh, a lot of things, um, especially with uh, with him at the head coach and, and with Justin as the quarterback. We've seen what Doug Peterson has meant to Trevor Lawrence here in Jacksonville. You think there'd be a similar connection with Harbaugh and Herbert? out there and that gets me to the supporting cast final moments with fernando ramirez of the sporting tribune fernando keenan allen's not getting any younger mike williams is still reasonably young but he can't stay healthy he's got a lot of injuries uh gerald everett's not getting any younger and for that matter austin eckler is not getting any younger i mean what are they going to do to surround herbert with pieces to be contender out there well, I think uh, when it comes to the off, well, just real quick, just because it all starts here, for the offensive line, I think what they're going to end up doing is uh, I feel like they're, they're going to plug and, and do some things in free agency. I know that they have some money issues, but I expect them to, to try and bring back uh, Khalil Mack, Keenan Allen. Uh, Joey Bosa will be a toss-up, but especially with Patrick Mahomes in the division and everything, I, I, I would think Jim Harbaugh would want all three of his pass rushes because we all saw last year, Tuli Tuapolotu, Khalil Mack, and Joey Bosa, when all three of them were on the field at the same time, they were they were pretty uh, aggressive. But it'll be interesting to see how in what capacity. But when it comes to the weapons, I, I, I'd be surprised if Khalil Mack was back. Uh, Keenan Allen, I think he still has a lot left in him. He has a different kind of play style, so he doesn't need to rely on his speed or any of that he relies more on his uh on his quickness on his elusiveness and i feel like that he can go into an older age and still play at a high level so uh i think keenan is brought back maybe on a two-year deal uh, on an extension two-year deal and uh, i think that fifth pick is very valuable at this point because arizona is really going to be the tricky part of the whole thing what's arizona going to do are they going to go offensive line and try and help kyler murray uh, stay upright and not face all the pressure that he got when he came back? Or will they go Marvin Harrison Jr.? Well, if they go Marvin Harrison Jr., then you really have your pick. You have Malik Neighbors and you have uh, Brock Bauer sitting right there. And the Chargers need a tight end. They have not had a quality tight end. I mean, they've had some good they've had some good tight ends, but you need that, that next piece uh, tight end. Like we've seen George Kittle. Travis Kelsey, we've seen uh, Mark Andrews. We've seen a lot of good tight ends in these playoffs. Well, the Chargers need one, and, and I'm sure uh, Brock Bowers would be a Jim Harbaugh kind of guy. So it'll be interesting to see. But Malik Neighbors is also a guy that could really unlock a lot of what this offense does. And we know those LSU receivers are, are built differently. So uh, I think either way, they're going to try and build through the draft. And and uh, But I think Keenan Allen is back, and I think Mike Williams is the guy that uh, – is the odd man out, and he's not bad. And then Austin Eckler, I, I don't think he's back. Um, I, I just think that they're going to go another direction. I think what they're going to do is try and ground and pound, and that's not really what uh, Austin Eckler does. So uh, especially after coming off of the season that he just had, I'm sure uh, the Chargers will look elsewhere, especially if uh, if he's asking – if his asking price is going to be high, uh, I, I don't see him coming back. So um, that's, that's kind of where I see all the pieces moving forward for – for next year could be a real changing of the guard on that charger offense and yeah brock bowers is a guy we're very familiar with down here in sec country and you see a lot of mock drafts right now that have him going to la at number five fernando final question uh mahomes and the chiefs have done it again 
They're in another Super Bowl. I'm just curious from your standpoint, the Charger fan base standpoint, I mean, what is it like to to know that this guy's only 28 years old, you have to see him twice a year, and he's going back to another Super Bowl? Well, I mean, that just talks about the the what him and, and uh, Travis Kelsey have been able to do. But honestly, I, I go more towards the coaches, and I know that, uh, a lot of people are pointing at Mahomes and and uh, Travis Kelsey and saying, "Hey, they're great players." Yeah, but the the game plan that Andy Reid has really taken into these playoffs, and uh, Steve Spagnolo, the defensive coordinator, they've really turned it on. I mean, in the second half of games, they've kind of their offense has kind of struggled to get anything going, and their defense has really picked it up for them. So I, I'm I'm really impressed with what they've done. Uh, I think as long as Spagnolo and and Andy Reid are there. I really think that they can uh, keep this going. But, yeah, no, Mahomes is obviously a, a, a freak of nature. I mean, he got bent over backwards yesterday by Baltimore, and he got up like – and then he got hit clotheslined in the face, and, and he still got up and, and kept on going. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm telling you, uh, Harbaugh versus Reed and Mahomes – is gonna be uh, is gonna be incredible to watch. I, I can't wait to see what that is. And I'm already calling it right now. Both of those games need to be in prime time. Don't give us any of these one o'clock, whatever. These the, both of those matchups have to be in prime time. It has to be a Sunday night and then a Monday night because uh, I think you're gonna get some good football right there uh, next season. And then obviously, I think to start the season, uh, it should be Chargers and Ravens. I think that'd be a great at SoFi Stadium. I think I'm not a schedule maker or anything, but I think that'd be a great uh, a great way to kick off uh, Jim Harbaugh returning to the NFL, facing his older brother. That's a good point because I know Baltimore does travel out there, and I could see that John and Jim going at it maybe on Sunday Night Football to begin the 2024 regular season. Fernando Ramirez of the Sporting Tribune, he's our guy when it comes to the LA Chargers. Fernando, appreciate the time. We'll dial your phone again uh, when we do our division previews later on this off season. Thank you, brother. We'll talk soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, have a great rest of your week. And thank you to Fernando Ramirez of the Sporting Tribune for joining us tonight here on Hacker After Dark as Jim Harbaugh back with the Los Angeles Chargers in the National Football League. You know, it's interesting. We talk about this coaching carousel. I brought this up earlier in the week here on Hacker After Dark. It's usually about the up-and-coming offensive minds, right? Look at who got the jobs this time around. There were a lot of openings. Gerard Mayo, a former linebacker, takes over in New England. Antonio Pierce, a former linebacker, takes over with the Las Vegas Raiders. Dan Quinn, a defensive coordinator, gets the job in Washington. Mike McDonald, a defensive coordinator, gets the job in Seattle. Jim Harbaugh, an offensive mind, but he's 60 years old, right? Not exactly an up-and-comer. And Raheem Morris, back as a head coach, as a defensive coordinator. So only two of, I believe, the eight jobs that were open went to what you would call the young offensive guys, right? Tennessee and Carolina. Everybody else hired an older coach or a guy on the defensive side of the ball. It's just interesting. It's a lot different, certainly a lot different than maybe what we anticipated. Ben Johnson remains in Detroit. Bobby Slowick remains in Houston. Those guys were thought of very highly um, coming into this coaching carousel. Both guys have chosen to remain 
with their given franchises. So the defensive coaches, is that a D'Amico Ryan's situation? Do people see D'Amico Ryan's and say, yeah, that's kind of the new trend of the NFL? We'll see. But again, only two, what you would call young offensive minds, got jobs out of the eight jobs that were available this coaching carousel here in the NFL offseason. Well, that'll just about do it. It has been a very busy night and a very busy week here on Hacker After Dark. We certainly appreciate you guys hanging out with us, not only tonight, but all week long here on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We have a ton of people to thank. Again, Fernando Ramirez of the Sporting Tribune covering the L.A. Chargers and the Jim Harbaugh hire. Appreciate Fernando taking time out for us tonight. Thank you to Jose Sanchez, all49ers.com, as San Francisco getting ready for Super Bowl 58. Jose has been very gracious with us over the last couple of weeks, joining us every week, and we certainly appreciate him doing that. As is my guy in Kansas City, Seren Petro of Sports Radio 810 in the Kansas City area, as we looked at the Chiefs with Seren and the 49ers with Jose getting ready for Super Bowl 58 one week from Sunday and back in hour number one, my buddy John Shipley of Jaguar Report talking Jags as we are well inside of six weeks now until NFL free agency. I believe the exact day total, 38 days away from NFL free agency, Monday, March the 11th. We will have clarity by then on Josh Allen and the franchise tag, potentially some clarity on Calvin Ridley to see if he hits the market. It'll get here quick. Again, 38 days and counting. We will be back Monday night, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. I hope you guys have an absolutely fantastic weekend, some great college basketball, and maybe enjoy a little downtime with the family, right? First weekend without football in a long, long time. I got a little family reunion, actually, that I'm going to down in Titusville this weekend, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for spending part of your Friday evening with us and your entire week with us here on Hacker After Dark. As always, we certainly, certainly appreciate it. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely fantastic remainder of your Friday evening and a terrific weekend. And we will talk to you again Monday night right here on Hacker After Dark beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.